So, good evening. I want to uh, explore this evening a theme that really continues from last night, and that the theme for this evening is uh, speech practice and mindfulness, looking at a number of different forms of mindfulness practice that really are part of or contribute to our speech practice. And I'll invite us all, just as I did last night, to listen both internally and externally, to stay with yourselves as you also listen. We will repeat this theme from time to time during the, during the retreat. And I will intend to do the same. I will intend to keep inner awareness as I speak. In fact, one of my main mentors, when I was uh, starting to do a lot more teaching and giving talks in this context, his guidance for me was this. Do whatever preparation you do, but when you get to the talk, be in your body, stay in your belly and your heart, and let your thoughts self-organize. You might try that next time you do public speaking. (laughs) It's quite interesting. It's a practice. So that really is a practice for me. And so I will try to stay attentive. So last night we explored speech practice as an integral part of the path of awakening. And we looked particularly at one form of speech practice related to the ethical principles uh, connected with uh, speech. And these are really the main teachings on speech that we get from the historical Buddha, interestingly. And so what I want to explore tonight, I think can be read as having been implicit in the teachings of the Buddha, that one should be mindful in speech. But a lot of the techniques that we are mentioning, virtually all of what we are covering, was not reconstructed from text, but is more the creative attempt of contemporaries to lay out some of what speech practice looks like in ways that are helpful and skillful. And so I want to talk particularly about five forms of mindfulness that are central for our speech practice, several of which we've already begun to explore. So I want to come back to the theme of connecting inner and outer attention at the same time. I want to come back to the theme of the importance of mindfulness of the body for our speech practice. I want to look a little more depth at how we develop mindfulness in relationship to the ethical uh, principles. And I want also to look at the way that we can understand 
nonviolent communication as a form of mindfulness practice. And then lastly, say a little bit about the importance of mindfulness of thoughts and emotions in our speech practice. And I actually give a little more attention there because that's something we haven't really covered yet. And it'll segue with, with some of what we'll do with the NBC work tomorrow morning. So that's my intention. And I also want to talk generally some about the nature of mindfulness. What is mindfulness? How do we practice it? What's its importance, really? And where does it... Um, where does it fit into the larger model of practice? So one way that I often like to think about practice, this which really brings together all the tools, mindfulness and loving kindness and wisdom practice and so forth, is that one of the ways that I like to think about the whole idea of practice is as uh, what we might call appropriate response to each moment as it comes. And I'm reminded of this wonderful story, which has inspired a lot of people, of a Zen teacher who was asked near the end of his life, what is the meaning of enlightenment? And you might think that you might get some kind of philosophical answer or maybe this really complicated metaphysical answer like enlightenment is understanding the interpenetration of self and other without fixation on objects in the midst of the overflowing heart connecting with the wisdom mind. And we get trained to do that. (laughs) So, um, but... The Zen teacher didn't say that. He didn't give a conventional answer. He didn't talk about nirvana or anything very conventional. He said, what is, an enlight- what is enlightenment? Appropriate response. Very down-to-earth understanding of what we're intending. Appropriate response. And it becomes clear that Appropriate response is something that we do moment by moment as we live. And one way that I like to think of our practice in a very simple way as appropriate response is to think of it like this. Mindfulness tells us what's happening in the moment. Mindfulness is like our information system. It tells us how I'm feeling, what my emotions are, what thoughts are going through, what repetitive patterns of mind am I noticing, or whatever. Or it can also tell me very simply, I'm very warm. Mindfulness lets us know that. On the basis of mindfulness, on the basis of knowing what is occurring, we summon our best wisdom and compassion to decide how should I respond. And that's the moment of intention. In other words, we, on the basis of mindfulness, we get our best wisdom and compassion helps us to form an intention. Okay? This is happening. I'm warm. 
Wisdom and compassion says, take off the sweater. (laughs) And so I form the intention, and then lastly, I act. And this can also show the centrality of intention as we've been working with it, uh, particularly today. So mindfulness, then to the extent that I've cultivated wisdom and compassion, I become able to uh, see what a wise and compassionate intention is for this moment, and then I act. And so mindfulness really is what really gives us a basis for acting, ultimately, for responding. We have to have that mindfulness. So we might look at an example, um, I don't know, at the evening meal, the question arises, should I have seconds? A question which may have arisen. How many people had this question arise in your minds? Okay, about more than half, okay? And so what would we do? We can, we can ask our mindfulness, what's going on? Am I full? Where are the thoughts? Are, are there thoughts coming? You know, what's, what's there with my body? And then I summon my best wisdom and compassion to say, should I have seconds? I am full. But this is the time to really be generous and kind towards myself. <laughs> Standard Buddhist rationalization. <laughs> right. In any case, I, I do my best, and I, but that's the process that we can go through moment by moment with something very ordinary, like should I have seconds? And then on the basis of that, I decide and then presumably I act. So it's something, it's very simple, but it can show really the importance of mindfulness. Mindfulness really gives us this very, very important understanding of our experience, what's happening in the present moment. And mindfulness is this central capacity in this journey of awakening. Some of you may know the classic text from 2,600 years ago, from the Buddha, where he, this is from the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, uh, one of the collections of texts from a very short text, about 10 or 12 pages, called The Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. Sutta means discourse. Sati means mindfulness. Patana is usually understood as something like the foundations of. So the foundations of mindfulness the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And in that text, the Buddha says, practitioners, mindfulness is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So this process of simply being aware moment to moment, practice we've been cultivating and we're making the connection between mindfulness and speech practice is taken to be right at the heart of transformation. And it's also so simple. It's really basically saying sustained attention is freeing in the long run. Sustained attention to present-centered experience 
over time has a liberatory power. And so all that we ask in practice is simply keep on being present. And of course, we also then train ourselves in wisdom and compassion, but it's quite simple. See, because it's, it's taken that moment by moment attention over time is part of how wisdom develops. We keep on noticing how, for in, in the instance of this retreat, how I am speaking. We may notice certain patterns. Many people were noticing patterns very quickly uh, this morning and afternoon. We notice patterns and the whole approach of mindfulness is to have us study our minds and bodies and hearts over and over again so that we see patterns. And it's almost a given that when we look carefully enough, we will tend to let go of that which is not helpful, which is connected with suffering. And we will tend to want to have more of that which brings about well-being. And so the mindfulness practice really is quite simple in a certain way. We just have to do it a lot. We just have to keep noticing a lot. And one of, the, you know, one of our problems is that often we haven't noticed so carefully. That's why we need training in it. We need training to be able to notice more carefully and to bring it into all the parts of our lives. And the focus on this retreat is to bring that quality of mindfulness as well as wisdom and the open heart into our speech and to give very practical ways to do that. So what does mindfulness help us to do? One thing that mindfulness helps us to do is to really stay with what's happening. It helps us not to be distracted. Mindfulness has a certain degree of concentration so that we can stay with the object. If I'm mindful of my breath, it means I can stay with it to a certain extent. This is from about 2,000 years ago, a commentary from the ancient traditions on the meaning of mindfulness, on the meaning of mindfulness in that classic text. It's from one of the texts called Abhidhamma. The word sati derives from a root meaning to remember, but as a mental factor, it signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present, rather than the faculty of memory regarding the past. Mindfulness has the characteristic of not wobbling. Buddhist technical term, to not wobble. 2,000 years ago, right? So mindfulness has the characteristic of not wobbling, that is, not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. So part of what is there with mindfulness is that we're actually aware of what's happening in the present moment. And again, it can be very, very simple. I am aware that I have warm sensations in my body. I am aware of my breathing. I am aware this thought came through. 
and we're aware of it while it's happening. Mindfulness has the quality of being directly with experience rather than interpretive. Interpretation can have its place, but mindfulness has a certain direct quality. And it's very important in our practice to know the difference between more direct experience and interpretation. It's a very fundamental reason why mindfulness practice can be so beneficial because interpretations can be helpful, but they also can get us caught in assumptions and stories, right, about a given situation. So it's really, really important to know when we're caught in an interpretation or when an interpretation is dominant. Again, recognizing interpretations have their value. So mindfulness is direct, it's present-centered, It lets us be with the phenomenon in the present moment. And interestingly, the etymology of of mindfulness, the word sati, does in the etymology relate to memory. And there is a way that we are using memory in mindfulness, an interesting way. And that way is that we need to remember to be present. (laughs) That's part of why we practice. We have to remember to be in the present moment. So it's an interesting paradoxical mix of past and present, right? We remember, and that's really what we do here. You know, we're just sitting, and all of a sudden, I've been distracted, and suddenly I remember my intention is to be mindful. I remember to be present, and I come back. So it has that quality as well. Mindfulness also is very simply with whatever is occurring. We sometimes speak about bare attention. Mindfulness has a bare quality to it. It's simply with what's going on. We could say it doesn't bring in judgment. It just is with what's happening. I have unpleasant sensations in my back. The role of mindfulness is to just be present with it. It's not to make commentary. That can, that's another part of our mind does that. But the mindfulness, with mindfulness, we learn to have a bare attention that's simply with it, that's simply with the present experience. And the last quality I want to mention is that I think ultimately, as our mindfulness becomes more mature, mindfulness can have a warmth and kindness to it. I think ultimately, the very act of attention brings love that there's something about attention which carries, can carry when our minds and our hearts are integrated, there is a quality of warmth, a quality of love with the simple act of attention. It's something to look at to see whether that's there. But ultimately, mindfulness, I think, is integrated with the heart. It's not a purely cognitive function. And so we can, we can see that as we practice. We can see that sometimes to be mindful, let's say, of something difficult, may evoke the heart. We may have, in being mindful of hearing something from someone else, it may evoke a sense of empathy or warmth or compassion. So how does mindfulness uh, help us 
with our speech practice. I think we've seen that it plays this very, very central role in our speech practice. And I wanted to talk then about these five ways of cultivating uh, mindfulness and speech. And the first is something we've explored, but I wanted to say a little bit more about what I take to be a very um, wonderful, powerful, and creative capacity to be mindful both of, uh, as it were, our inner experience and our outer experience at the same time. And again, this is something that isn't so explicit in the teachings of the Buddha. And I think it's, 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 on the other hand, it is so central for our speech practice. And I would say it's central for what we might call all of our relational practices. All, all of the ways we want to bring our spiritual practice into our time in relationships with others. And it's quite interesting, as I was mentioning earlier today, that a large part of what we've inherited from the Buddhist tradition is primarily an inner, more solitary practice. And it's, to me, very central and important to open up relational practices. These are the kinds of practices that will help us practice with our families, our partners, our pets, our work situations, our communities, our activism, and so forth. How can I have this inner and outer attention at the same time? I think it has a meaning for all of those kinds of work. And it really helps us to have not just a vague sense of practice when we go into relational context, but as we're developing here with speech practice, we can have a pretty refined sense of what practice means. To me, this is very exciting (coughs) and part of a real creative effort in our time to make practice come alive in our daily lives. I think this is a huge cutting edge for our practice generally speaking, to really ask how can my spiritual maturity be both expressed and cultivated in my ordinary life, not necessarily only on retreats? It's a really crucial question. And I think what we're exploring here with speech practice and the very nature of a relational practice, one that combines inner and outer, points towards some of what we need. You know, And I was thinking of Different, um, different kinds of work. So for example, um, I as a teacher have been using this combination of inner and outer practice for some time. So I, ha- I have a certain number of people that I do one-on-one work with. And this, this might be analogous for those of you who may be teachers or therapists. And so I, pract- I do a kind of formal practice when I'm with people, I keep inner attention as I'm with another person. And I also try to keep outer attention in several ways. I try to be with the person. And I try to have, actually, this is getting a little more complicated. I try to have both uh, an empathic outer connection and also be aware of gestures and more outward movements. Right? And I also try to be aware of the whole field. And over time, this has been a way that I work one-on-one with people, but also 
that I like to teach that way. In, in other words, it helps me to really have my attention be quite out there and not just contained, as it were, in my skin-encapsulated body. And so as a therapist, this could be tremendously valuable. And a lot of therapists, I think, work like that because as a teacher or therapist or defense attorney, I think it's very important for us to know what our reactions are at the same time that we're acting, right? Very crucial information. As a therapist, I need to be aware if I am, have a special reaction towards a person that we call, in that world, we would call that the uh, counter-transference. You know, how someone, how the therapist, you know, may have a certain chemistry with the client, and the therapist really has to study what's going on internally to be able to know that. A teacher would be very much served by knowing what are my reactions to this student and are those getting in the way of my teaching, right? Or what's the class just did this or that and what's my reaction? I, had, I just had memories come back of when I was in my 20s and I was doing substitute school teaching in Richmond, Virginia. And they like to play around with substitute school teachers. I, was, I don't know why this memory just came, but it just did. And I, would, I was remembering, I was helping once with, I was substitute, substituting for an art class in middle school. <laughs> and the memory which comes to my mind at this moment is of when they got my attention in one corner of the class, then someone turned out the lights and they all threw paint at each other. <laughs> the creativity of young people. <laughs> so, so if I was... If I had my mindfulness practice down, I probably would have noticed them scheming in the corner. But, but if I'm, let's suppose I come back after that situation, it's very good for me to know what my reaction was to them turning off the lights and throwing paint at each other and to um, still be, have my actions based on my best wisdom and compassion rather than my um, reactive rage and assertion of... <laughs> the power of authority. <laughs> so, so it's actually very crucial, I think, that we have this capacity to develop inner and outer attention at the same time. It really is quite powerful. And I was mentioning earlier how it's, I think it's profound on quite a number of levels. I was mentioning uh, the fact that I think it also can be connected psychologically to the capacity for both autonomy and connection at the same time. That it can be connected with the ability to be centered in oneself and really know what my experience is while also attending to the experience of another. And several of you were mentioning how that goes against conditioning, right? How we may have been conditioned primarily to attend to the other and not be able to actually attend to the other and self at the same time. And so this, to me, this very simple practice of cultivating inner and outer attention starts to cultivate more that capacity for mature connection 
that's based on, as it were, both sides or both partners or both persons having autonomy and having the capacity to connect with the needs, experiences, emotions of myself and to know what they are and to be able to act on that basis. The second core practice of mindfulness that I think is very, very central is one that we have been mentioning a lot, and that is the practice of mindfulness of the body. This is why I think any practices that we do which help us with mindfulness of the body will really help our speech practice. So our walking meditation in which we connect with a mindfulness of the body, practice of yoga, practice of being with the breath, with the body in meditation, of being with the sensations of eating in the dining hall. All of these help us connect with our body. And as we were seeing, even a small amount of contact with the body can give us some of that inner attention as we're speaking. Just to have, as as I think Janice asked, we can just have the awareness of my hands on my knees if I'm at a meeting or if I'm in the courtroom, right? If I'm in the courtroom and no one else knows what you're doing, but you just find yourself taking a moment and maybe tapping your knee. Okay, inner attention, okay. I would like to make my rebuttal to that argument. <laughs> right? And uh, just to have some inner attention through some contact with the body, as I was mentioning, it breaks the monopoly of the mental stream. And it really makes a difference. It, as it were, uh, cuts through the monolithic tendency to be in the mind chatter world. Right? And it may not do that Uh, to the point where we're really mindful and present in our bodies entirely, but it makes a difference just to know that, that any awareness of the body, it may sometimes feel like I'm still, my mind's still just going on and on, but I guarantee that just some mindfulness of the body will have an impact. And it's this wonderful practice that goes against much of the conditioning of our culture, which is to be quite mental, One of the great Thai forest teachers, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, who I was privileged to meet in in Thailand, a very influential Thai teacher. He was once asked uh, what he thought of Western civilization. Um, And his answer was, lost in thought. (laughs) It always makes, when I say that, I always think of Gandhi was asked the same question. What do you think of Western civilization? And his, his answer was, it would be a good idea. <laughs> so, uh, and so this practice with the body, so central. And I'll just tell one brief story, which is to say that um, for me, being with the body has been a really core part of my practice. And I think it was when I first was practicing a revelation to actually 
as the phrase sometimes goes, come, come to my senses. Having a sense of being apart from my senses for a lot of years. And come back and be able to just be present, more, closer to 100% with the sunsets, or with a tree, or with something else in nature. And to be with the sensations of my body and learn more, especially as I learn meditation, how to be present in that way, increasingly for sustained periods. And that awareness of the body can really be something which stays with us. As we get stronger in our mindfulness of the body, it can be something which is always accessible. And if we have a strong mindfulness of the body, our speech practice of having both inner and outer will tend to be more natural. Will tend to be will tend to be easier. I was once talking with uh, John Travis when I was uh, studying with him a lot, and I think I was complaining, and I was saying, "All these people in Tibet or Thailand, they live in monasteries. They have it easy. You know, we have these daily lives. You know, we have to." Um, Try to be present and aware when there's not so much outward support. It's not easy. And he said, let your body be your monastery. Kind of like a turtle, we carry the monastery around with us. (laughs) And that really stayed with me. In fact, when he said that, it was electric. Really, something really connected with me. I said, yes, you know, that if I can be present to my body... I have continual reminders to be aware, to be mindful, to be, to be wise. So very, very central. Anything we do which cultivates mindfulness of the body will help our speech practice. We also can use the ethical guidelines as, we, as I was exploring yesterday, can be spurs to mindfulness. I can almost do a check-in. Am I, am I being truthful, helpful, kind, and appropriate? And I can especially look to times when I notice the, one of those qualities is not present, when I go into a gray area, when I exaggerate or have an omission. And at that moment, I can really ask what's going on. I can bring mindfulness to the moment guided by my work with those principles and just ask, what's happening right now? Or I'm talking and I realize my heart's not really there. What's, what's happening? Or I say something harsh. What's going on? What's, my, what's going on in my experience? I can really inquire and use mindfulness just to ask what's going on right now. A fourth area I want to mention, the first was connecting inner and outer, the second, mindfulness of the body, the third, using the ethical principles as an aid to mindfulness. The fourth is this way that we can see the whole discipline of nonviolent communication as a further refinement 
of mindfulness. And this is very similar to what we find in the classical teachings on mindfulness. Because in the four foundations of mindfulness, we are not simply told, just be mindful. Rather, we are told, be mindful in these ways and look in these directions. Look at the body. Look at thoughts and emotions. Look at your patterns of suffering. And it's sometimes been said that it's not enough simply to be mindful. We need to know what to be mindful of. And sometimes I can be very mindful and, and be mindful not of what's most important. I can be walking down the street. Let's say I'm walking in the middle of the street and I can really be attentive to the sensations of my feet. I may not be mindful for the loud sounds indicating an oncoming vehicle. I can be very mindful of the sensations of my feet as I experience some of the last moments of my life. <laughs> Maybe a bad example. But, but you, get the, you get the point that we can be highly mindful and not be directing the mindfulness in the right place. And so one of the tools, uh, one of the set of tools, or one of the ways to look at the set of tools we get from NVC is to say, bring your mindfulness and look here. Look at the whole area we, call, we were calling needs. Look at the emotional state. Bring your attention to this aspect of the way you use language. And so I, I learned that from Oren, and I really appreciate that, that we can interpret this whole discipline as asking ourselves to look in this direction. Look over here. And what do you see? And we can use the same quality of mindfulness that we've developed in these other areas. The last kind of mindfulness practice that I want to talk about will help us to segue, really, with what we're doing tomorrow morning. And it's a very central part of our practice. And this is the ability to cultivate further mindfulness of our thoughts and emotions. Very central aspect of mindfulness. A large part of what makes um, speech practice challenging is what? It's that we're not necessarily tracking our thoughts and emotions in the midst of speech. And simply being able to know this person said something, I'm really angry right now. And to know that I'm angry rather than simply reacting, goes a long way in terms of challenging speech. And so a significant way that we can develop in skillful speech is to give further attention to mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. Again, most of us in our meditations, that's already been a significant theme. I think we can really do so in three main ways. And we'll also be introducing in the meditation instructions tomorrow morning some further development of working with thoughts and emotions. 
I think the first kind of mindfulness related to thoughts and emotions is simply noting that a given thought or emotion is happening. And part of this is to become more, what, uh, more skilled in just identifying the whole range of what are thoughts and emotions and accurately knowing them, accurately being able to perceive. Okay, here, here is a memory, here is a fantasy, here is planning, here is a uh, judgmental thought, here is sadness, anger, fear, and so forth. And a lot of us may not be so good at that, at actually being able to identify. I think I, in my own conditioning, I wasn't so good. People would ask me, what are you feeling? And I would typically tell them what I was thinking. <laughs> right? And I would, if my ability to identify a range of emotions was limited. And so part of what we do is we simply track and develop this larger vocabulary. So the first kind of mindfulness of thoughts and emotions is simply noting them when they're happening, being able to identify them. We use sometimes labels for that purpose in our, in our practice. A second type of mindfulness of thoughts and emotions is being able to explore the way a particular thought or emotion feels in the moment, or the way it appears, I should say, the way it appears in experience. So I can, I notice that there's anger. I make the mental note, I know it, and it hangs around for a while, and I study anger. I stay with it. Let's say it stays with me for five minutes. I stay with it. And I notice how it feels in the body, the emotional energy, the thought patterns, and I just try to notice them in the spirit of mindfulness, much as I would do being with the breath. When my mind wanders, I come back. If I go off on trains of thought, I come back. I just try to stay, in this case, with the anger, or it might be fear, or it might be happiness. You know, thoughts are more subtle and harder to stay with, but sometimes we can stay with them. A third way to be mindful of thoughts and emotions is to start over time seeing some of our most central repetitive patterns. And this, is, this has already happened. People were mentioning these just by brief examination of how we were speaking. A number of people were saying, oh, I see I have this pattern. And it's part of what we might discover on this retreat is to discover in a clearer way what are some of my patterns of thought and emotion? You know, in particular, what are the kinds that are problematic or that are connected with suffering? What leads me to become reactive and angry? What leads me to become negative towards myself, for example? And so we start over time. This isn't an invitation to be overly analytical, but it's really to be something, it's a practice that we can simply start noticing. And over time, we can start noticing, oh, there was this stimulus, and I went there. You know, for me, one of my major learning experiences came when I, when I started studying some of my own personal patterns of what led me to be judgmental. And I learned that particularly working with a, a person in an authority role 
who I thought uh, often didn't listen very well to me. And I would notice myself talking with him, and then a short while later, being emotionally distanced and judgmental. And I was in a relation with him where I had meetings with him every two weeks, so I got a lot of chance to study this. <laughs> and over time, and some of the patterns take time, over time I got to be able to see really, really clearly, this is a really basic pattern that I have. Someone doesn't listen to me, and it could happen at work, it could happen in a family context, it could happen in a lot of contexts. An old pattern, someone doesn't listen to me, I'm reactive, I withdraw emotionally to a place of what I came to call distanced moral superiority. (laughs) Where I would be emotionally distant, but highly superior. (laughs) In its own way, at the time it felt quite satisfying. (laughs) Has anyone ever experienced this? A few of us, maybe that's why the unifying factor for why we come to this retreat. (laughs) Uh, And so over time, it wasn't like I set out to study it, but just bringing mindfulness to a situation, we have these aha experiences, like a few people reported, where I just come to see a particular pattern. I come to see that this stimulus leads to this reaction. And then I start noticing another context. So what do we do with thoughts and emotions? I mentioned these three ways to sort of deepen mindfulness. Another way to look at it is that we follow a process which can be called the process of RAIN. R-A-I-N. How many people have heard of this acronym? It's a very nice way to look at how to work with thoughts and emotions. I'll be brief here because of time. The R stands for recognition. That really is similar to the noting, right, that I was mentioning. We want to recognize the thought or emotion. The A stands for acceptance. Acceptance not in the sense, not in the sense that this is moral, it should be this way, but acceptance in the fact that this is real. This is really happening. And so I may have an emotion that I don't like. The A part of it is to accept that this is really happening. It may be something that if I practice may not happen in the same way in the future, but for now I have to say it's happening. That's the A part of it. Recognition, acceptance. The I is for inquiry. This would be that exploration I was talking about. Really be with the thought or emotion if it stays for a while. And the N stands for non-identification. This is more Buddhist language that's really saying, can I just be with the process as if I was a scientist? Can I just be with the thoughts and emotions going through my experience and simply be aware and mindful and track them without taking them so personally? And I might notice myself having a personal reaction. And I can just notice that and let that go and come back to just being present with the thought or emotion. And so this is a very wonderful way to develop mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And I want to distinguish 
mindfulness of thoughts and emotions from how we might be skillful, particularly with challenging thoughts and emotions. That's a whole other area that we can bring in later. The mindfulness is the starting point. So mindfulness is not the be-all and end-all of how we are with thoughts and emotions. It's valuable to have a number of other tools, particularly with repetitive thoughts and emotions and those that may be causing suffering. It's valuable to have a number of tools in addition to mindfulness. But mindfulness for right now is our fundamental starting tool with thoughts and emotions. The quality of uh, non-identification and acceptance has been really expressed well in uh, a poem. I think I want to finish with two poems. The first poem is by Rumi. This, and it's a poem that I think many of you know called The Guest House, which is really about mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a, mean, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's that spirit of mindfulness, of being present, of being in that space where we just stay with it without thinking that we know what it's about necessarily, but letting the repetition of mindfulness be our guide. And then I want to read one poem to finish by Pablo Neruda. And this is a poem which really brings out the quality of repetition, which is really central to the practice of mindfulness. That mindfulness, I sometimes think of as the exhaustion method. This is my own phrase. It's not from the Buddha. <laughs> Probably not the best publicity. We won't put it in the spirit rock literature. But I think it's a lot how mindfulness works. We actually sometimes have very quick insights and let go of bad habits instantly. Mostly. <laughs> Mostly we notice, we make good intentions, and the old habits come back soon. And so there's something about the mindfulness practice which is about continually looking with patience. Looking, 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 sometimes until we feel exhausted. I am so exhausted watching this pattern of mine. Has anyone experienced that? Yeah. It's a good sign to keep on going. You're close. <laughs> so keep on noticing, keep on noticing. And there seems to be something in us which at a certain level of exhaustion gets it. Would that we were constructed differently. But this seems, from my experience, to be the case. We just keep noticing. And at a certain point, we notice enough 
and there's an aha experience, and something goes deeply in, in us. This is how mindfulness works. And this poem, I think, expresses it quite nicely, that spirit of repetition, continuation, and patience. Pablo Neruda. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. I'll read it one more time to finish. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Actually, uh, in where I read the poem, it doesn't have a name. We can we can find out. We can do some research. Okay, thank you. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Let's just sit now quietly and let the talk just whatever has been helpful or important or whatever is present, let it just resonate with you as you sit for a minute or two before we go to walking meditation. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So thank you so much for your kind attention. We have a little less than half an hour for walking and we'll come back for the loving kindness practice at nine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.